Cubs are gonna, you know what, I figured it out, never mind. Figured it out, I'm good, I'm good, I got it. It's just, it's been gnawing at me. That's all, I promise, that's it. So, amen. Yeah, so, um, well, good morning again. Thank you all for being here. Uh, as we get started, I wanted to say thank you. Um, you know, last month was, was Pastor Appreciation Month, and I really do, um, Sarah and I read through the, the, notebo- the notebook that you guys wrote in for us, and uh, just thank you so much. Thank you for the kind words and for the encouragement. Um, it really is a joy to be here and to be your pastor. I really do love it. So thank you, everybody who wrote in that. Um, thank you for Amy and Wayne for putting that together. Um, it was really, it's a really awesome treat, and I just I very much encourage, I appreciate the encouragement. Um, in John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace and unity within the church has been a reoccurring theme for Paul in the letter to the Philippians. In this series that we've been looking at, um, where is the joy? Finding our joy in Christ in this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And peace and unity within the church has been a, been a reoccurring theme. And this morning, we're going to see Paul's view on how to achieve peace. Peace with each other and peace within ourselves. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump into uh, Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, um, there should be one in a seat back around you. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible as our gift to you. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into Philippians chapter 4. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for another day together. We gather here, and we sing, and we celebrate you this morning. It's another day that you have provided for us. God, as we gather this morning, we have this luxury to be in a building that has a big sign out front that says we are a church. We get to publicly gather and sing and shout. We have Bibles on top of Bibles. We have so many that sometimes we lose them. And God, on a day like today, we remember our brothers and sisters around the world who have to meet in secret, who might not ever actually get to own a Bible because it's illegal. God, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world as they try to live out their faith in countries, in places where it's illegal for them to do so, where they face death for just saying the name Jesus. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray that you might protect them. Lord, we pray for those places where there are leaders who are so against Christianity that they've made it illegal and made it a, a, something that can lead to death. Lord, we pray that in that leadership they might come to know you that the gospel might go through and change hearts, change lives, change entire civilizations. God, you are in control of all things. Where there is anxiety, where there is fear, where there is torture, let there be peace. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick it up in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Pray for peace. 
Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Sancti to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's love for the people is again on display in this letter. He says, my brothers, those whom I love and long for, I anguish for, you are my joy and my crown. Paul's joy is not shaken by his current circumstances, but rather it is furthered in seeing this church in Philippi flourish. He says, you are my joy and my crown, the symbol of victory in athletics. The honored guest at a banquet would get this, this crown made of leaves. And so as the church stands firm in their faith, as they continue to trust in the gospel, they are a reminder to Paul that the ministry he was called to is bearing fruit. Even though he is in prison, he sees them as this tangible reminder for him of the good work that God has entrusted to him. They, he sees them as this tangible reminder that God knows what he's doing, that God is in control, and he is doing a work through Paul. And so he encourages them. He says, stand firm in the Lord. Stay committed. Stay focused. You know the truth. You know the gospel. You know that God is good, so stand firm in that. Do not be shaken or moved from what you know to be true. Stand firm knowing that you are citizens of heaven. Stand firm knowing that there is a hope and life to be found in Jesus. He says, stand firm as you pursue unity within the church. Stand firm as you strive to build deep, real, lasting relationships within the church community. And the thing that you are to stand firm is, Paul says, the thing that you are to stand firm is, like a soldier at his post is the word he uses, you stand firm in Christ, in the Lord. This is the second time he has said this. He said this back at the beginning of the letter in 127. He says, that I might hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm. Stay focused on Christ. Let that be the driving factor of your life. And all the other exhortations of this letter are going to make sense. He calls them his beloved. You who I care for so deeply, stand firm in the Lord. And if you are standing firm in the Lord, then unity should abound. We see in verse 2, there's some kind of argument. There's some situation. We don't know the argument. We don't know the situation. But Paul calls out these two women to be reconciled to one another. How awkward must that have been, right? Somebody's reading this letter. Everybody's gathered. Hey, there's a letter from Paul. Let's go and let's gather. And there's people standing around and they're listening to this letter. And it's, you know, rejoice in the Lord. And I'm suffering for Christ. And these are all great things. And then he gets to this part and he says, hey, you two, knock it off. You got to figure everybody kind of turned and looked. I'm like, what, Really? They got called out in this letter. There is this issue between them. And note how Paul handles this. First off, he doesn't take sides. He doesn't say one of you is right and the other one's wrong. 
He just entreats them. He urges them. He pleads with them to agree in the Lord, to focus on what they have in common, to what they agree on, and let the other things fall to the side. And this works because they have Christ in common. They have the gospel in common. This is what the church should look like. We can disagree with things, but at the end of the day, the church community should be a place where we resolve our differences differently. We have the gospel in common, and when we focus on that, when we focus on the things that we know to be true and good, disagreements and disunity fall away. And then see what Paul does. Look at verse 3. He gets a third party involved, who we only know as true companion. Some commentators say that that's a a proper name. Um, It could be a nickname. I've heard a lot of different nicknames. True companion is a new one for me. Um, But whoever this person is, he says, you, true companion, I want you to help, help these ladies pursue unity. Paul trusted them to bring peace, to be fair, and to help these ladies in this disagreement. This is how the church is supposed to act, right? If you have an issue with someone, you go to that person and you try and work it out. And if you can't, then you bring in a third party to help mediate. Not to take sides or to gang up, but just to help make everybody understand what's going on and help find a resolution. Paul wants peace amongst the people because he knows that their hearts, he knows their hearts. He served alongside them. He said, I know them. I know they're good people. I know they know the gospel. I have served with them. I've worked with them. Let's find the things that we can focus on and focus on those positive things. And he goes on to encourage them. He encourages each person to pursue peace, not only amongst each other, but within themselves. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is a great and popular verse. Some of you probably have t-shirts or coffee mugs with this verse on it. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Now some of you might hear this, and if you've been around for this sermon series for a while, you might hear this and think, man, we are really harping. Tim, you are really harping on this joy thing and finding your joy in Christ. Really, I'm just reading what he wrote. Think about if you heard this letter in all one chunk, how many times Paul has repeated himself. Find your joy in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. When you are standing firm in the gospel, you are my joy. He really wants you to think about where your joy comes from. Do you get it yet? Are you starting to see the importance of finding your joy in Christ? Not finding your joy in your circumstances or in your mood or in your relationships, not in your past or your present or your future, but in Christ. In the fact that God loved his creation so much that even though we are naturally rebels and enemies of him, he sent his son to die for us, to show us his love and grace and forgiveness, even in the midst of our rebellion. There is a joy in the fact that God loves us and wants to give us his forgiveness and new life and new identity by placing our hope and faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And I think this verse carries a little extra weight with it because we know the source and the situation. Because we've been studying Paul, because we've been, we know about his background, this carries a little bit extra weight, right? Because if this verse, if he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, if this was written by some guy who never dealt with any hardship, who never faced any adversity, and he just lived simple and easy, 
these words I don't think would carry as much weight, right? Like, yeah, it's easy for you to say rejoice. But we know that Paul has lived a hard life. We know his current circumstances. We know he is chained up awaiting a trial that could sentence him to death. That things look bleak and most of his life has been really hard. Most of, we just got done, we're wrapping up Acts tomorrow in our read through the Bible, in our read through the Bible um, uh, two-year journey. And, you know, as we've seen, Paul is just getting beaten up over and over again. His life as a Christian was hard. He suffered for the gospel. And yet he is able to, rejo- he is able to write, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Life is not always easy. Currently in this room, we have people carrying some very heavy burdens. Maybe it's your finances, or it's a relationship. Maybe it's the weight of a hard decision. Whatever it is, this passage this morning is for you. Because what we can learn from Paul is that to rejoice in the Lord is something we can do at any time regardless of our circumstance, because we are not told to rejoice in our money. We're not told to rejoice in our relationships. We're not told to rejoice in our political party. We are told to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in your unending relationship with God, a relationship built on unconditional love that has been given to you from God through Christ. Rejoice in the Father who made you, who knows you, and who loves you. Rejoice in the Son who came to earth to live perfectly and die to pay the debt you owe for your sin, who rose from the dead, showing he has the power and authority over everything. Rejoice in the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the guide, the encourager, the convictor, the one who is in you and with you and will do great things through you. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Not just in the happy, not just in the sunshine, not just when it's easy and everything's going right, but rejoice in the Lord always. This is the mark of the Christian, to find our joy in Christ always. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said it this way, if you ever rejoice in the Lord, you may always rejoice in the Lord. For he is always the same and always gracious. There is as much reason for rejoicing in God at one time as at another, since he never changes. So what that means is on the good days, when we wake up on time and the coffee is made and we get to work on time and the emails get taken care of and traffic isn't that bad, on the good days, we can rejoice in the Lord. And on the days where we oversleep, and we stub our toe, and we spill coffee, and the L is just packed with people, and everyone wants something, and it's the strain and the stressful days. In those days, we can rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice because God is the same yesterday, today, and always. We said at the beginning of this series, joy is a confidence in God's control of my life. A confidence in God's control of my life that leads me to trust him and praise him regardless of the situation. So why does Paul repeat himself? He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Why does he repeat himself? I think there's three reasons here. Rejoicing always is hard. 
right? It's, it's kind of easy to say, well, yeah, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's easy to just say the words. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's hard to have joy all the time, to have that confidence to trust and praise him all the time. That's not easy. Because we live in a world that is contrary to God. We live in a fallen, broken world. We live in a world that is constantly pushing against us, constantly fighting against us, constantly fighting against that desire for in us to trust and praise him. There is this constant noise in the world telling us to trust ourselves, praise ourselves, trust in a product, trust in an idea, praise and trust in a candidate, trust in a car, a TV show, a social status, a tech company, trust and praise in those things, and you will be happy, and you will find joy. Not God, because he's going to let you down. When in actuality is the things of this world that will fail away, that will fail you and fall away. There is a constant noise about what to have our confidence in, where to put our faith. And Paul here repeats himself to emphasize and remind us, rejoice in the Lord always. And it may be hard, but it is possible. It is possible to find your confidence and your comfort in God. It is possible to have that lift you up over the chaos and the murkiness and ugliness of this life. When I was in college, my first year at Trinity, um, uh, you know, I lived on a guy's floor, and a guy's, every guy's floor had a girl's floor, like sister floor, and you would do activities with them and hang out and whatever. And one of the girls on our sister floor, uh, her dad passed away a couple months into, into the school year. And she reached out to her RA and to our RA and said, I really want to have a time where we get together and we just have a worship. Can we just have a worship and prayer time? And I remember walking in to Johnson Hall and she's sitting in the middle of the room with her mom. Her mom came up and they're just sitting in these chairs just weeping. Just weeping, holding each other. And we spent the afternoon singing. Somebody brought a guitar, somebody brought djembe. And we sat and sang because that's what she wanted to do. And we sang about how God is indescribable. We sang about how great our God is. We sang, blessed be your name. And she sat and she wept and she sang and she worshipped and she prayed. It is possible to be in the ugliest, in the worst, in the hardest situations of your life, in the angriest and most confusing situations of your life, and respond and say, God is good and I will rejoice in that. It is possible. Paul did it. He's sitting in jail saying, rejoice in the Lord. I've seen it happen. It is possible to be in these hard, ugly situations and still say, God, you are good. And Paul wants to remind us of that. And it's part of our witness to the world. If we are constantly losing hope, if we are constantly losing faith, giving up on situations, what makes us any different than anybody else? What makes us any different than the world? If we are completely overwhelmed and in a perpetual state of despair, what kind of hope are we pointing people to? And I'm not saying you need to be like a bucket of sunshine 24-7. That's not joy, that's happiness, and that's a little weird. But life is hard, okay? You can be sad. 
You can be angry, but do not lose your joy. It is one of the many ways we are called to be lights in the world. If your joy is wrapped up in Christ, it changes the way you live. Look at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Your reasonableness. This is also translated your patience, your softness. That patient mind, gentleness, modesty, forbearance, the forbearing spirit. Let this be the mark of how you are known to everyone. Jesus had this characteristic about him, this reasonableness, this gentleness. We see it with the woman caught in adultery. In John 8, the Pharisees bring this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, bring this woman to Jesus and say, Jesus, she was caught. We got witnesses. She was caught in adultery. The law of Moses says we're supposed to kill her. What do you say we do? They did this as a trap for Jesus. And Jesus, they're talking at him, and he's drawing something in the sand. He's like playing tic-tac-toe against himself or something. I don't really know what he was doing. But he doesn't really pay attention to what they have to say. And then he stands up and he says one of the more famous verses in the Bible, let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. And all these Pharisees bail one by one. And eventually it's just Jesus and this woman. And he looks around and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He doesn't treat her according to her sin. He treats her as a person. There is a gentleness in his interaction with her. Let this, Paul says, be the characteristic, be the mark of the church, a gentleness, a patience, a reasonableness. Because if you are that kind of person, you are more likely to have people come to you and share their burdens and to seek your counsel. Christians need to be known not for what we are against, but what we are for. And that's not to say we need to be wishy-washy on sin, right? Jesus tells this woman, go and sin no more. Literally, it's go and leave that life behind, right? We hear this all the time. Jesus hung out with the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Yeah, but he didn't, like, sit around and say, hey, it's really cool that you're stealing money from people. He calls them to life change. But the way he treats them, the way he interacts with them is as people. There's a gentleness to his spirit. He was welcomed among them, and they heard him. Why? Because he brought a message of hope and life, not condemnation. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, because the Lord is at hand. As if you needed more motivation other than it's good and Christ did it, the Lord is at hand. How about the fact that Christ is coming back? We should be living expectant of that. If you read the New Testament, as we walk through our two-year journey, as we're reading the Bible, you're going to see the writers of the New Testament really believe Christ would be back soon, that they wouldn't be waiting very long. And because of that, it changed the way they lived. It changed the way they lived in relation to each other and to the world, to the non-Christians. We should be living with this sense of urgency. If you are a Christian this morning, you believe Christ is coming back and will come at any point, We do not know when that will be. How often does that truth actually creep into your brain? How often does it actually affect your decision-making? What would change in your life if you actually lived day-to-day with the thought 
with that thought at the forefront, that Christ's return is soon? How would your relationships be different? How would you spend your time? How would your conversations be different? How would you spend your money? Because it's a true statement, right? We believe, if you're a Christian, you believe Christ is coming and could come at any minute. We believe that, but we file it away in the back of our minds, even though he is coming. And so in light of the encouragement to rejoice in the Lord always, and the exhortation to be known as gentle and reasonable people, Paul challenges us in the way that we are to think and pray, because he says the Lord is at hand. So that should change some things. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious about anything. Again, Paul, man, that's easier said than done, buddy. This word for anxious means pulled in multiple directions at once. Our hopes and desires pull us in one direction, and our fear pulls us in the opposite. Anxiety and worry, two things that often can dominate and control our thoughts and our actions. We can become slaves to these. We can become slaves to these ways of thinking, which can lead to even physical consequences, right? Headaches, neck pain, ulcers. Worry can deprive us of sleep and has the ability to lead us into depressive states. And so because anxiety can be so overwhelming, we are instructed not to worry. Again, easier said than done, I know, but Paul doesn't just say, stop worrying and move on. He gives us the resource and the encouragement needed to battle against anxiety. Because ultimately, anxiety, when you boil it down, really is saying, God, I don't trust you in this. When we are anxious, when we worry, when we fret, it's really saying, God, I don't believe that you're in control here. And it strips God of who he actually is in our lives. Paul says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, in everything, go to God in prayer. Prayer is a gift given to us by God. It is a way for us to have a conversation with him. That's what prayer is. It's a conversation. Tim Keller, in his book, Prayer, Uh, says this, prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace. This conversation will eventually become a full encounter with him. It is a tool that we can bring these things of our lives to God, to share our burdens, to share our joys, to share our anxieties with the God who is in complete and total control over everything. Prayer can take a lot of different forms. You can pray out loud. You can pray silently. You can write your prayers. You can sing your prayers. You can pray by yourself. You can pray with others. Prayer is something the Bible gives us a lot of encouragement to do it, but not a lot of detail on this is the only way you have to pray all the time. And I think that's intentional because it allows us to interact with God where we're at. We're not bound to having to say this is the one way you have to pray all the time. You know, on Sunday mornings, we come in here and we sing. We sing these lyrics. We sing lyrics like, Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Highest praise and honor and glory be unto your name. We just sing, I need thee every hour, I need thee. 
We sing and we read scripture and we pray and we can say all the right things in here and we can do all the right things and have all the right conversations and then we walk out there and all that worry, all that anxiety, and we just pick those burdens right back up and carry on with our week. Why? Christians, we don't have to do that. We're not supposed to do that. This verse is a statement. It's not Paul saying, hey, by the way, you shouldn't be so worried. It's do not worry. Jesus said in Matthew 6, it's a long passage. I'm going to read just part of it. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Again, this is a command from Jesus. So why do we ignore this one? Why do we ignore this don't be anxious command? We chalk it up to, well, that's life. Life is hard, so I'm anxious. And in doing that, we are ignoring the gift and power of prayer in our lives. Prayer is valuable. It's why we do it a lot at CF. It's why we have our monthly potluck and prayer nights. We have Sundays. Our Sundays are drenched in prayer. From 9 a.m. all the way through the service, we pray as much and as often as possible. It's why we're getting together. On November 17th, we're getting together with our brothers and sisters from Addison Street. They're coming here, and we're going to have a prayer night together. Because prayer is important and powerful. That Thursday night, this room is going to be filled with people with the same goal, with the same purpose, to thank and praise God and ask him to protect and bless our city. There is a power and a hope in prayer. You should be here on the 17th. Because there is a power and an authority. When Christians get together and pray, there is a life. There is something about that. Paul doesn't just tell us, hey, I'll be praying for you. I know you're anxious. I'll be praying for you. But he gives us direction on how we are to prayer. He says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known. The word for prayer is the general word for making requests known to the Lord. It carries the idea of adoration, of devotion and worship. Whenever we find ourselves worrying, our first action ought to be to get alone with God and worship him. Adoration is what's needed. We must see the greatness and majesty of God. We must realize that he is big enough to handle any problem we have. So as we enter into these times when we're worried and anxious, take a minute and spend time adoring God for who he is. He says, by prayer and supplication, the asking of our requests to God. He knows what we need. He's paying attention. He cares for you. He knows what your needs are. But I think he likes to be asked. There's a C.S. Lewis in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, the book is called The Magician's Nephew. Um, Aslan, the talking lion who's in control of everything, for those of you who haven't read the books, sends these two kids, Polly and Diggory, on a quest to go get, um, they have to go get this flower. And they send him, they send, he sends them with a flying, talking horse named Fledge. Because um, that's the world that we're talking about. And so they go on this quest, and the flight is too long, so they take a break. 
and they land in this like meadow and Fledge is over and eating some grass. And uh, Polly and Diggory stared at each other in dismay. Well, I do think someone might have arranged for our meals, said Diggory. They have no food. I'm sure Aslan would have if you would have asked him, said Fledge, the flying talking horse. Wouldn't he know without being asked, said Polly? I've no doubt that he would, said the horse, still with his mouth full of grass. But I've sort of got the idea that he likes to be asked. Supplication is bringing our requests to God, our needs to God. Saying, God, I can't do this on my own. God, I need your help. God, please get involved here. It's our chance to give God room to just show off and be God. He likes to be asked because he cares for us, because he loves us. He loves you so much. And so when you come to him and say, I need your help, and because he is good and kind and a dad, he enjoys taking care of his kids. Yeah, he knows what you need, but he also likes for you to come and ask and let him give him the opportunity to be the dad that he is and show off and take care of you. So we come to him with prayer, we come to him with supplication, and we come with thanksgiving. Paul says, when you pray, give adoration to God. Then make your requests known, but also thank him. Thank him for what he already has done. Thank him for what he's doing right now, and thank him for what he hasn't even done yet. Paul is a prisoner who could very soon be put to death. And he tells them, remember to have a heart of thanksgiving when it comes to your interactions with God. Remember to be thankful for who he is. Adoration, supplication, thanksgiving, this is to be our response to anxiety. Take these things that you're worrying about and give them to God. You take them to God, but Paul says, don't just take the stuff that's bothering you. Don't just take the anxiety and the worry. But he says, in everything, pray about everything. So what kind of prayer life do you have? How can your prayer life grow? Is it a time thing? Maybe you think, well, you know what, I'm just too busy to have a real good prayer life. What about on your commute? What about in bed? What about in the shower? Maybe next time Netflix asks you, are you still watching? Maybe that's a hint you need to spend a little less time watching and a little more time praying. I say that from experience. We have time. We all have time. It's just a matter of whether or not we want to spend it with God, whether or not we see the value in speaking with God. And maybe you feel like, I don't know how to pray. Just talk. Just talk. There's no special magic formula. And if it feels weird to talk out loud, do it silently. Use a prayer journal. I love writing out my prayers. Just talk. The words don't matter. The heart matters. He just wants you to show up and pray. Show up and have a conversation. And so if we haven't been convinced already that we need to spend time in prayer, Paul gives us another encouragement in verse 7. He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If anxiety is the illness, Paul's prescription is to be in a steady and constant life of prayer. And the result of that, of that prescription will not be only the elimination of anxiety, but a peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. The result is not just that God will remove all trials from our lives. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if you pray, God's going to remove all your trials. That's not what he says. Paul is still in jail, right? 
Paul ends up being martyred for the faith. But rather, as we go through these trials, we will have a peace and confidence that God is in control. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't understand it. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It means it won't make sense. It didn't make sense that Paul is talking about joy as he writes this letter. Or that when he was in prison in Acts, he's singing worship songs while he's sitting in jail. It doesn't make sense that my friend was sitting in a room weeping and worshiping God even though she just lost her dad. That sounds great, right? It sounds great to have that kind of peace, to have that kind of relationship. But remember what the prescription is. The prescription is, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything be in prayer. Pray for the big stuff. Pray for the little stuff. Pray in joy. Pray in sorrow. Just pray, because he wants to talk with you. And not only will there be a peace, but that peace will guard your heart and your mind. God's peace will watch over you, will stand guard over your heart and your mind. It's a military term. It's a, go- it's a soldier at his post. He will guard your emotions and your thoughts. God will protect you. That's part of his character. That's part of him being a dad. He wants us to trust him enough to get to a place where we are going to go to him in every and all situations. In everything that we are doing, we are going to him in prayer. There's a lot of anxiety right now in our country over what's coming on Tuesday. There's a lot of fear and worry. My question is why? Because Christians, God's in control. He's not surprised. He is bigger and can handle whatever the end results are on Tuesday. Is he worried? Nope. So why should we be? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.